you blink, you've gone too far. We all get our news from the gal behind the bar. It takes a village to raise this community. And even if you don't go to church, you say grace or give your thanks before you eat. This is us, a small town in America. And put simply, we like things how they used to be. We got one stop sign. The bar closes at nine and we got an Exxon. You can't miss it. It's up there on the right. And this is home. We take care of our own. If you can't relate, get back on the interstate and go. Well, hello, everybody, and happy anniversary. What's the anniversary? Well, yesterday marks one year since the very beginning of Climax the Podcast, Love Letter to a Small Town, a product of the Climax Scots Digital Network. More on that in just a second. As you've come to expect, this is your host, Kevin Harvey, proud 1998 graduate of Climax Scott's Junior Senior High School. And Climax the Podcast is a free show to listen to, but it is not a free show to produce. And the easiest way you can support is just listen every week. Subscribe on the different feeds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and there's about a hundred other ones. You can share the podcast on your social media. You can leave us a review. All of those things help get more ears on this show. Last week was a really fun episode, episode 25, that's K-R-I-S-T-I-N with Kristen Wachowski, the OG sponsor. If you haven't listened to that one, go back in the archives. You can always, if you heard about a show, you don't have to listen to it the week that it's out. They're always out there in the archives. You can get them on ClimaxThePodcast.com, you can get them on ClimaxGotsDigitalNetwork.com, and you can get them in our app. More on that in a second, too. If you've listened to this show before, you know we like to do the business up front and thank those that help us keep the lights on here at Climax the Podcast. First up is that OG sponsor, Kristen Wachowski with State Farm. Kristen's office is located in Battle Creek on 20th Street, right across from Ollie's and behind Chicago Title. She's got great big signs there that make it really easy to find her office. Insurance is one of those things that's very easy to make impersonal and make it all about the numbers, but Kristen and her team focus all about you and your family's needs. No matter what your insurance needs may be, auto insurance, motorcycle insurance, homeowner's insurance, condo insurance, renter's insurance, business insurance, and the list goes on and on, give Kristen and her team a shot. If you need new insurance or you're in a position to reevaluate your insurance, give Kristen and the team a call, 269-968-5130. Or you can get in touch through their website, callkristen.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N, callkristen.com. And Climax the Podcast is brought to you in part by our friends at Eldred Homestead Bed and Breakfast. Located at 6378 South 44th Street in Climax, it's probably the most unique stay you're going to have in the entire Kalamazoo County area. The Eldred Homestead is just chock full of personality, it's chock full of history, there's so much to learn, and on top of that, it's a really nice place to stay. If you happen to be in the Climax area for the first time, check them out, or if you're coming back home to visit because maybe you now live out of town, why go to a cookie-cutter hotel off I-94? Get in touch with Eldred Homestead Bed and Breakfast. You can check out their listing on Airbnb.com. Give them a call at 269-808-8183 or send an email to eldredhomestead at gmail.com. And Climax the Podcast would not be possible without the support and archival access to our friends at Prairie Historical Society. PHS is a nonprofit organization that has been documenting the histories of Climax Scots in the surrounding area for almost 40 years. They are kept going by their membership donations from the public. Those memberships start at just $15 a year to become a supporting member of PHS. That $15 gets you access to their six bi-monthly newsletters. 
And there's probably going to be some more benefits to that on ClimaxScottsDigitalNetwork.com. Got to iron out some details on that yet. PHS is open Tuesdays from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. and on Thursdays from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. and is located inside Lawrence Memorial Library in Climax. To become a member, you can send those payments to PHS 107 North Main Street, P.O. Box 82, Climax, Michigan 49034. You can get in touch with and follow PHS on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Climax PHS. And if you can't make it up on a Tuesday or Thursday and you need to do some research on your family genealogy or maybe a local business and the history of that, you can schedule an appointment outside of those business hours to do that. Just call 269-746-4796. At the top of the show, we mentioned product of the Climax Scots Digital Network. CSDN is trying to cover all news, people, and events of the Climax Scots community. So there's a lot more than just Climax the Podcast when it comes to covering the people, news, and events of CS. We have our website, ClimaxScottsDigitalNetwork.com, or you can also go to csdigitalnetwork.org. We have our app now. There's the Spaces by Wix app where you can actually get all the content from CSDN right to your phone. There's a few different ways to support financially. There's a merchandise link where you can get some shirts, the Climax the Podcast mug, and a few other items. You can make a monetary donation, and those donations are tax-deductible. CSDN is a nonprofit organization, and more information about that is available on the website. And we've updated the website to include our services. CSDN is offering digital conversion services, so if you have things like VHS tapes, maybe those old mini camcorder tapes, there were Hi 8s, VHS C, Mini DV, if you have audio cassettes, and there's a few other things we can do as well. The cost starts at $20 per unit, and then volume discounting starts at five units or more. So if you have the, that shoebox full of tapes or maybe that tub full of old tapes that you've just been putting off, you want to watch it and you just don't have a VCR anymore, get in touch with CSDN. In addition to that, if you didn't know it, virtually all forms of tape degrade over time, so there is a shelf life for those tapes before they wouldn't be playable anymore. Take action before your family's memories maybe aren't accessible anymore. Again, for more information on that, ClimaxScottsDigitalNetwork.com. And just like that, the business is done. And yes, this is the one-year anniversary of Climax the Podcast, Love Letter to a Small Town. The one-year anniversary of the first show hitting the internet was actually yesterday. The original release date was supposed to be January 18th, but if you can imagine this, I got a little excited and pulled the trigger and did something early. But it was one year ago. Everyone was learning what Climax the Podcast was for the first time with that first guest, Lark Murphy, the longest tenured teacher in Climax Scott's high school. That was a very fun episode, and it really set the tone for what Climax the Podcast would become. And to go back and listen to that first episode, it's, it's really wild because a year ago, we were calling Climax the Podcast Season 1. I still lived in the Chicago area. It's, it was a little bit complicated to produce a show with original face-to-face -face interviews about Climax and Scott's when you live about 200 miles away from it. But between the original interviews and the PHS archives, we got 10 episodes there in Season 1. If you go back and listen to that season one, you know there was kind of a what looked like a path for me to get back home from Chicago to Climax, and then that didn't work out. The show fell off for a while, which was okay. I mean, we were taking a seasonal mentality. Season two could have been a year from then. It could have been six months from then, but a whole lot of things changed in my life, largely for the better. I ended up back home in the month of August. We got Climax the Podcast back off the ground and running, and now it's a weekly show no seasons, 
And for those who enjoyed the show, they can now count on it coming to their mobile device or their computers or whatever internet connected device every week. So many thanks it could give, but my God, it would be a long list. But to the sponsors who got the show going, to the guests who've been on the show, to everybody who's listened, just thank you for helping make it one year. Now, let's go for two. And with that, let's segue into the main event for this week's episode of Climax the Podcast. This week, we've got somebody from a bloodline who's one of the bigger names in Climax history. If you've ever used a telephone or the internet in Climax or Scott's, there's a really good chance it probably went through Climax Telephone Company or CTS. I mean, heck, that's probably how a lot of you watched cable TV for years. And there's been one family at the center of it all. The man at the helm for a long portion of that, a second-generation owner of Climax Telephone Company, pioneered into CTS. One of the town's leading innovators, without a doubt, is Gil Culver. So without further ado, let's get into the main event of episode 26, The Phone Lines Are Open, part one, with Gil Culver. Well, here we are at his main event time on the latest episode of Climax the Podcast, and it is a day later than usual this week, but I think once I introduce our guest, you're going to understand why. One of the most impactful names in Climax history is the last name Culver, and I have with me Mr. Gilbert Culver. Gil, welcome to Climax the Podcast. Thank you for having me. I was, uh, I don't want to say happy about the turn of events for the weather, but I was shocked when I ran into you at coffee hour at church last week thinking... I didn't know Culver's were in Michigan in January at any point. Ordinarily not, but um, had enough other things going on. Come home for the holidays, and then I had a doctor's appointment, a dentist appointment, an airport board meeting, and <laughs> and then did a little quick uh, UP trip to do some snowmobiling. Yeah, I now know. it's Florida time. So. <laughs> yeah, I would think especially after the last four oh, or five boy. days, yeah, uh, Florida's really, got to be looking pretty good. That put the exclamation point at the end of the plan. Yeah. When was the last time you were probably in uh, the southwest Michigan area for that like minus 20, minus 30 wind chill? It'd be a long time. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, I most wouldn't recommend the nope. experience. Nope. <laughs> in fact, I'm kind of surprised these uh, bottles of water didn't freeze yeah. just walking in from the car. Well, and, um, an interesting fact and something you probably wouldn't even believe, but we were in Newberry in the UP over the weekend. It was 10 degrees warmer there <laughs> than it was here. <laughs> it, so it, sometimes you get lucky. It's it's funny how that works out yeah. sometimes. But yeah, it's it's definitely been an unapologetically Midwestern winter the last few days. But I'm glad and thank you for carving out some time before I know you've got to head back to Florida. But one of the things we tried to do with Climax the Podcast is document as much of the history of the town as we can. And there aren't many family names that can rival the amount of history that's been done with the uh, as that can be said for the Culvers over the decades. Well, there's been, um, of course, having been in the telephone business, and I've got some old directories and it there's been some interesting changes in there in that if you go back a long ways there's always been pipers and there's always <laughs> yeah. been van middlesworth and so on and so forth and they they were contributors to the area just as much as anybody else because they were 
Well, I remember them being on the school board and township boards and so on and so forth. So it's a maybe a small town blessing in a sense that you end up with people that have roots. And their 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 dedication probably is a little different. Well, even just looking at uh, the way our families have intertwined. I mean, you graduated with my Uncle Mike. Yep. And then your, I believe Becky was in my dad's class, your sister Becky. I wouldn't be surprised. And just the way that you and I haven't had a huge amount of interaction in our lives, but the common ground that we instantly have because we know Eldred's, Van Middlesworth, Piper, (laughs) (laughs) the list goes quite literally on and on. It's To me, that's one of the most special things here is, I think last week was the first time you and I were in the same room since probably the 1990s sometime. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> and the journey in Climax, now, your family wasn't always in Climax. Didn't your folks move here when they acquired the Citizens Telephone Company? Was that right. the start of Culver's in Climax? Yep, yep. That, that was the beginning. Um, the real background came from the thumb area, what we call the thumb area of Michigan, uh, near... Bay City, but it was a little town called Munger, and uh, believe it or not, my grandfather owned the telephone company in Munger, (laughs) although he was a postal delivery man. That's what he did for a living, basically, but um, he somehow ended up owning that little phone company, and so that's kind of what got the ore in the water, so to speak for the family interest. And then when dad graduated high school, uh, for reasons that I'm not 100% sure, but he had a brother. And dad didn't stay with that little company. He went to work for Michigan Bell. And uh, then my uncle uh, ran that little company until it was sold Sometime in the early 50s or mid-50s. And then, uh, so Dad worked for Michigan Bell from 1937 or 38 until 49. And basically what he did was he he was sent to a little town called East Tawas, which is right on the lake. And, of course, he was there during the war. And in those days, those little towns that were served even by Michigan Bell or the big companies would send somebody to that town to be the maintenance installer repairman. And that was Dad's job. And um, interestingly enough, part of that involved getting on the railroad train and riding up to the Air Force Base that was north of there because that was telegraph, was on the wires that ran along the side of the railroad tracks. So that had to be uh, maintained, and that was, uh, you know, part of the whole game in growing the system. And then in 1949, he, they wanted to move him to a, an inside job in the switch room. And that didn't appeal to Dad because he was an <laughs> outdoor guy, hunting, fishing, so on and so forth. And so he 
decided he was going to look for another way to go about it, and there was a magazine printed in those days called Telephony. And that magazine had ads in the back of it, people looking for help, uh, so on and so forth. Sure. And what showed up there was Climax Citizens Telephone Companies for sale. And uh, makes sense. There was no other real way to get that news out to other phone companies that might have been interested or whatever the case might be. And in those days, there were, oh, probably 80 phone companies like that in the state of Michigan. And they were largely in small towns that the big companies had no interest in serving. And so what would happen is that somebody locally would decide, well, we need telephone service. And it, again, you're, you're talking about history in Michigan and telephony. You might say, well, where was the first phone company in Michigan? And most people would probably say, well, Detroit, Lansing. Wrong. The first one was in a small town called Ontonagon in the Upper Peninsula. <laughs> and what had happened was the guy that owned the lumber company had gone to the World Trade Center um, show, if you want to call it that, uh, somewhere in New York, I think, at the time. And he was there when Alexander Graham Bell was one of the presenters who displayed his phone and how it worked and so on and so forth. And that gentleman uh, bought two of the phones, took them home with him to Ontonagon, and formed the Ontonagon Telephone Company by putting one in his lumber camp and the other one in the bank so that he could communicate with what was probably the most important business connection to him in growing his his business. So that's, I always thought that was kind of an interesting uh, trigger point to say, well, okay, you know, the small towns weren't necessarily behind the power curve when it came to thinking and doing and so yeah. on and so forth. And that company stayed in his family for at least three generations. Um, and that, of course, was started in the late 1800s. Well, it's just, it's been funny to me just before we got together today, even looking at the evolution of Climax uh, telephones. I mean, gosh, 90% of our interaction to set this up was tapping our thumbs on a phone screen or something. <laughs> and I was reading about the first phone in Climax. There was only one, and it was in, was it McIlvain's or it was McIlvain's? Uh, McIlvain was the yeah. way it's pronounced, yeah. And yeah. it's trying to remember, like anybody listening to this, probably on your smartphone where you can order a pizza <laughs> and schedule your doctor's appointment and everything in your life off this little five-inch screen in front of you. Imagine if you wanted to call your mom. Well, today you'd have to put on your long johns, your overalls, <laughs> all your winter gear, walk up to McIlvain's and hope that mom was going to pick up on the other end. Yeah, actually, the first phones in in the village were put in to get 
long distance, actually, not for local calls. Gotcha. And that was um, basically connected through a couple of steps all the way to Grand Rapids. And then you could talk to an operator in Grand Rapids and get your uh, connection to some other place in the in the state as things grew. So, yeah, that's it's pretty much the way things happened. And then in uh, the Climax Citizens Company was formed in a what you'd find if you studied it nationwide. A lot of rural areas where the big companies, again, weren't interested in um, providing service, they would form what was called cooperatives. And there are still a lot of those left around. And then fundamentally, the cooperative was uh, more like a club or a you know your your local uh, golf club, whatever the case might be. You know you were a member, and you paid your dues, yeah. and then you could <laughs> either play golf or you could have a phone. And Michigan did not allow that. So the what the companies had to do to get something going, or the community had to do, I should take it back, was either someone in the community, such as the guy in the UP, would say, well, I'll form a phone company, and he'd fund it. And then he would go out and say, all right, who wants to be connected? And if he could get enough of them, then he could say, all right, we'll build a line. And <laughs> off he'd go. And then, But the Climax system was set up the other way. Somebody went out and recruited investors, and you became... Uh, you owned a share if you were uh, going to be served by that. And so then what would happen, and it was interesting in a sense and probably a little um, behind the power curve if you look at it that way, if the farmers out on S Avenue decided they wanted phone service, They'd build a line, and as they built the line, they'd pass this guy, that guy, this farm, that farm, and see who wanted to be connected, and then that person would have to buy in as a shareholder in the company, and those lines would run. At that time, the switchboard was in what's now the, uh, used to be the hardware store, but the Cummins uh, building, mm -hmm. it was in there. And they would bring the wires all the way in there. Well, that became a bit of a challenge because the farmers didn't necessarily know how to build phone lines, and they would tack it to a fence post or a tree. <laughs> and if you could go north of town here just before the corner, look at a tree on the west side, there's still an insulator bracket. That's right? what that is. Yeah. Okay, I've noticed it up. That's yeah. If you basically look to your left, heading yep. south on forty four, yep, just before you get to um, MN Avenue, if you're heading that way, or if you're coming this way, about the third tree, <laughs> take a look, and that's been up there since 
probably 1911, Jeez. 12. And that served a line that went all the way to where the Eaton Corporation building is today. It had 18 parties on it. <laughs> that that alone is just funny to think yeah. of. From Basically from the corner just, uh, just north of town yep. all the way to Eaton's. I mean, I think you pass 18 places before you get a mile down the road now. <laughs> you do now, yeah. <laughs> Didn't in those days. So um, probably pretty much every farm on that route was on it. And, of course, that meant you shared it. And uh, they had to have a code so you'd know who am I calling. Yep. Or is that call for me or is it for the neighbor? Or <laughs> Well, soon you'd know. And there would even be situations where you might find people were related or friends or whatever, and they'd hear two longs and a short, and they'd say, oh, that's Herb. Well, they're <laughs> not in town, so I'll answer for them. Gotcha. Because it could be something important and uh, so on and so forth. And, of course, the reverse side of that would be uh, a farmer's got a problem with a sick cow and he needs to get a hold of the veterinarian and he goes and picks up the phone and somebody's yapping on it. Well, <laughs> oh geez. Well, phones weren't social instruments in those days. Yeah. So it was not considered inappropriate for him to say, hey, and he probably even would recognize who he was listening to. Sorry to interrupt your call, but I got a real problem. I got a sick cow. I got to get a hold of the vet and get him out here to uh, try to keep the thing from dying on me, you know, so that, oh, yeah, sorry, you know, talk to you later, and they'd hang up. Well, try that today and see how far you get. <laughs> that's, that's so funny to me to hear because it makes sense. I mean, I, I'm of an age where there used to be multiple landline phones in a house, and you might pick up the phone to bug your sister or yeah. something just to be, a, you know, a little, a little, little brother for sure, and <laughs> But then you apply that toward, okay, now the now the Vosbergs can't get somebody out to the farm because I'm yapping to somebody <laughs> else. That's that's wild. It's it's something that I'm I'm glad I have been around enough to kind of know those references. Yeah. But I just wonder, would a high school kid who's never lived in a world where a smartphone didn't exist, that reference might be totally lost. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. They, um, and that's. It probably has some tie to society in that sense that that was, you know, you you knew everybody. Um, today, maybe not so much. You know, you even in a little town like Climax, um, you know, people move in, buy a house, work in town. There's no grocery store. There's no hardware store. There's so on and so forth where they would bump into each other. Sure. Or um, I remember when there were three gas stations in Climax. So um, it was a much tighter community than it would become. Still good, but things have changed. So that was sort of the way the, the process worked. Well, and then was it 1949 that... Your parents acquired? Yes. Okay, so that's when they acquired Citizens. And then at that point, am I correct in that basically all the lines in town came through the house on Main Street? They did. 
So is that now? Is that building still there? Because that was was it one fourteen North Main? I think I'm remembering. It's where the post office is today. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I have a picture of it, but the um, at some point in time they moved the switchboard from the well, actually it was a bank building at, at that time to the home, and it was uh, the Mac family that. Had uh, there aren't any Max here now, but there were two or three families mm-hmm. over the course of time. And because uh, that was Cleon Mac at that time, Cleon, wasn't it? Right, was the he was an electrician by by trade, and uh, he and his father had obviously contacted every customer because every customer was a shareholder, and then one way or another, had acquired all the shares. And I don't really know what the motive was, but I think it was just that was the easiest way to maybe get it marketable and say, well, let's see if we can sell it. Because they were tired of uh, the battle of trying to grow it and so on and so forth. And then... um, so I have no idea how long they had total control before they started advertising for sale, but I don't think it was terribly long. And that got um, that's what caught Dad's attention and brought him to, to uh, purchase it. Now, in those days, was that something where was it fairly well just your folks that would run things, or is that something where if one of the kids was up and you see the little the indicator go off, almost anybody in the house was running the switchboard, or did your mom and your dad kind of keep tight reins on that? Um, in our particular case, see, I was five years old and my brother was nine. Uh, shortly thereafter, sister was three. So we were... You know, we were basically out of the loop as far as that was concerned. So they had operators that worked the day shift. Sure. And they were also sort of our babysitters if mom had to go somewhere and do something because dad was working um, 10-hour shifts getting things uh, straightened out because there were lots of problems with the... um, they say those lines were hanging on fence posts. <laughs> he knew he had to change that. So the switchboard was in. Oh, there was an addition kind of put on the front of the house, so it was like a little, a uh, little bigger than a closet, but basically it was separated from the living quarters, so to speak. But it was right ten feet from the master bedroom where mom and dad slept. And so when the uh, uh, operator left at the end of their shift, then it's shifted over to the family. Gotcha. To get up, go to the switchboard. And again, the, I think because, uh, again, most everybody in the town knew everybody. You were friends. And so on, and as I said, the thing was not a social device. Yeah. So there weren't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of activity after dinner time. Sure. So to speak, it pretty well quieted down. So um, 
that wasn't a huge issue, but I will uh, let it be known that my mother said, you have two years to get that out of this house. <laughs> and when she put her foot down, that was pretty much accepted as, uh, okay, that's what's going to happen. So, And it did. But in the meantime, if there was an emergency or somebody really had a problem, why they're going to ring the switchboard and somebody had to get out of bed and and go answer it. And I'll give you a little story. I can't exactly remember the name, but there was an old bachelor farmer that lived halfway to Fulton. And he would call at 9 or 10 at night to find out what time is it. <laughs> well, people that are old enough would know that in the very early days of dial telephones, you could dial a number mm -hmm. and they'd have a recording device that would tell you what time it was. Well, we didn't have one of those. But somehow, <laughs> this old boy thought that was perfectly okey-dokey. Well, my dad was a patient person and a kind person, and but after enough of that, he had all he wanted. He went to the hardware, bought a wind-up <laughs> alarm clock, <laughs> and took it out to the old boy and sat down and said, wind this up and take a look, and you can tell what time it is, and do not call me again. <laughs> so that ended that, that little routine. But, uh, of course, as soon as the switchboard was replaced with a central office dial system, then we could have that timer device, and we did. It was a fairly simple unit, but you, you dialed a 411 or whatever sure. number we picked, and then it, it would play the time. And that was talking about transitions, because that innovation is going to be a big theme as we continue talking throughout uh, this episode. Was that the Magneto system to the automated system, I think, were the names of those at that time? That's right. Okay, so that's getting away from kind of the old, uh, oh gosh, if you, just, well, someone my age would say, if you look at those old tapes where they were actually like pulling wires out and pulling it out of here and yep. into there. and Yeah, it was a physical uh, connection. So that when you, when somebody took their phone off the hook and turned the crank, it would light a light and drop a little flag on the switchboard so the operator knew that's who wanted to make a call and they'd plug into that and then say okay well, who do you what do you want and they would in most cases they just t say the name sure of who they wanted to call and the operator had to know well that's this one and then they could plug that one in and they would crank and that sent a signal out to that line to ring the phone. And again, as we said, it was two longs and a short or a short and three longs or whatever, and the lucky person got one long. <laughs> and then when that person answered, the operator would flip a switch and that connected the two of them. Gotcha. So if And took her out of the loop. So if Vosberg's needed to call Drawlets, yep. basically she brokered the deal and <laughs> eased her that way was, out of it. That's how it worked. Yep. Got it. And then the, the initial 
automated systems, we, they were called step-by-step. And what would happen is, as the person dialed the first number, there was a device that would roll seven over, and then when they ro- dialed the next number, five in, and that would get them halfway to where they were going. And then okay. That would connect the next step to the last, the other two digits, bloom, bloom, and then that would connect them to the cable pair or wire that went to that location and that took care of the local calling okay and in those days if you needed to make a long distance call you still dialed zero and when you got the operator the operator was actually in Kalamazoo gotcha and then they would make the connection to wherever it was that somebody wanted to to go Got it. Yeah. And was that system basically when we look at, say, old uh, phone numbers or old advertisements, was that when we would see the phone numbers that were like a six, a dash, and then four or five numbers after that? Well, what happens was they were set up as call codes. So Climax was Shadyside is what it was called. Well, if you look at SH... On a dial phone, you'll find that's seven four. Aha! Okay. And then you would dial the next five digits, and that's what would get you connected. So you can see from that that there would be the capability of ten thousand lines, and that was fundamentally how the whole system was set up. So it was the same in. Uh, Kalamazoo probably had three exchanges. Sure. Galesburg had one. Battle Creek had two. Lansing had 12. Detroit had 40 or whatever. I don't really know that those are correct numbers, but that was basically how the system worked. And so it didn't really matter uh, once you got to that number, you had to have another exchange it wouldn't handle any more than that and so for people in say Kalamazoo where you had three exchanges you might have to dial long distance to talk to your neighbor yep (laughs) because they were in the other exchange W.O. Woodward so on and so forth and that ended up being um sort of what triggered some of the changes that took place that really heavily impacted where Climax Telephone Company was going to go in the long run. Because in the mid-60s, the Public Service Commission decided that it would be okay to set up communication between exchanges without having it be a toll call. Gotcha. And um, my dad's theory always was give the people what they want and success or profits will follow. And you had people living in in Climax, but where did they work? Battle Creek, Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo. uh, Perhaps where was their family? brothers, sisters, 
aunts, uncles, so on, uh, where was their car dealer? On and on and on. And so then he looked at that and said, well, I think it would be attractive to the people in a little town like Climax to be able to call Battle Creek and Kalamazoo. So we started with Battle Creek, but what that meant was you had to have a big enough set of wires sure. to handle the calls. Well, who knew how many of that would be? You had to figure that out. <coughs> we got that one working, got the <coughs> Public Service Commission approval. And then, <coughs> of course, you had to raise the rate. Right. But now you didn't have to pay toll. So... Customers like that. Yeah, there's balance in <clears throat> that for pay sure. Pay another four dollars a month or whatever the case was, and all they had to do was look at their phone bill and say, "Oh, well, that'll save us money." Yeah, four dollars a month instead of a, seventy-five dollars for one call. Yeah, who knew? You know. So after that, added Kalamazoo, and then added Galesburg, and added Scotts. And so at that stage of the game, citizens in the Climax Telephone Company had toll-free access to more phone lines than any other exchange in the state. And people would say, that can't be. Oh, yes, it is. Because in Detroit, there were 40 exchanges. And each exchange was less than 10,000 lines. Now you had Kalamazoo, Battle Creek, Galesburg, and Scotts. You had well over 100,000 lines. I don't really remember what the number was, but it was uh, way more than what anybody else in the state had. And that not only you know, creates a, a success at the local level, but it also kind of sets the table for what's going to happen next. We didn't know this, but sometimes, uh, you know, fate plays its own hand. So then when the government regulators looked at the situation and said, well, um, I don't know why you well, we can't have competition at the local level. Instead of you're in this map zone, that's who you get your phone service from, period. And that's the way it was. So in looking at that, you know, Dad could see that, well, we've got a big cable running to each of those towns. And the law now says that if we want to, we can seek customers in those exchanges. Gotcha. And then you'd look at that and say, well, okay, why would somebody want that? Well, now you could call toll-free from Kalamazoo to Battle Creek if you had a Climax phone number because it went through our office. And, of course, the, that same approach to things 
strikes a chord. Businesses, ooh, yeah, if I sell a car or I have a customer for my furnace repair service, my plumber, my electrician, whatever, local call. You don't, you don't have to um, pay a toll call to report something's broken, you need help, you want sure. this, you want that. And that um, started things going. And the same thing with the whole idea of, well, yeah, my brother lives there. We talk all the time. Yeah, shoot. I don't, <laughs> yeah, right. I don't need to be paying toll to communicate. Yeah, it's even in my lifetime, realizing that that was maybe not when I was a kid, but looking back now, how big of a deal it was to be able to call the Battle Creek and Kalamazoo movie theaters yeah. to see which one you might want to go to because yeah. we basically right. live between the two. Yeah, when it was the only way to get that kind of information. Yeah. Yeah, no, no picking up your computer and going online, you know. <laughs> or so. driving to the theater and looking at showtimes yeah. on see the wall. Yeah, what's on the... I guess I'll look at this since yeah. it's 6.30 p.m. and it's the only option. Uh, you know, I'd like to uh, divert a little bit away from phone company. I know we're coming right back to it. but So you come here when you're about five years old. So did you do all of your schooling then in the Climax school systems? Yes. So, all right. So K through 12, Climax, yep. and eventually Climax Scots, because in your time that would have been when the school's merged shortly after you moved here, probably a couple uh, of years after you moved here. Yeah, I don't really remember exactly, but yeah, yeah. But what are some of your favorite memories of going through K through 12 at Climax Scott's class of, was it 63? Yeah. Oh, um, I guess much the same as the, the whole idea that you knew everybody. Uh, you know, my kindergarten teacher was Bethel Ebinger, and <laughs> and her husband owned the hardware store. And you know, they didn't come and go in those days. You know that uh, she was it, and then and she kept that position until she retired. And your superintendents and principals lasted a lot longer than they seem to in the current world sure. and they became a part of the community members of the rotary club going to the same church so on and so forth and that was um, um well, that was something that i think was helpful and then um i think when you look at some other aspects of it uh, sports you went out for the team you you made the team <laughs> yep period and you probably got to play because they needed it you know and if you looked at the notion of you know the bigger school that wasn't going to be the case you know you, you, your heart may have wanted to play but if you weren't big enough fast enough strong enough whatever you're not going to make the team well, and the if you made the team you might not get to play <laughs> Well, and the coaches could tailor their coaching so much more to the players, too, on that scale. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. They, And again, it was, it was probably more personal connection to those types of situations. You know, they not only 
maybe knew what your talents were, they knew you more as a person. Yeah. And that if you looked at that, that that went all the way um, to your doctor, you know, because he was a, he lived here. He was, you know, <laughs> he had a local practice. He was a family uh, practitioner. He went to the football games and took care of anybody that got injured. Um, you don't find that in the larger schools. Not that there's any problem with that, but that's kind of the way it works. So, yeah, it, it's something where I feel like for any of us who grew up in this community, no explanation is needed. Yeah. Uh, no explanation is needed. But for those who grew up in a you know a twelve hundred class, yeah. graduating class, like no explanation will probably ever do that justice, just yeah. how special that feels. You and I have kind of done the opposite of that, where we went small, <laughs> went someplace else oh, yeah. and realized, I kind of like that small <laughs> yeah. town after all. Well, my uh, theory on it, and it, it still holds true today in my view, that when people are sometimes making those kinds of decisions, I say it's the kids you send to the school not the school you send the kid to that's going to make the difference. And there's, a, uh, I think, a lot of, uh, let's just call it misguided thinking when somebody thinks, well, that school's too small. They don't have enough um, variation. They, they don't offer this, they don't offer that, so on and so forth. Well, they've gotten around a lot of that by having the, Kalamazoo Valley Intermediate School District and other situations where that, oh, if somebody wants to take calculus, well, okay, you know, we can do that. Yep. And today, you can probably do it online. Um, and I, I still think that that's an issue that sometimes is undersold in the decision-making process as to you know, Climax today probably gets a lot of incoming students because they want to be on the football team or whatever the case might be. And I look at it and say, well, um, you have a relative that made it to Harvard. And I do the math as an engineer and say, okay, out of a class of 40 or 30 or whatever, We've had one that made it to Harvard. And then if you were to look at any of the bigger schools in the area that might have a 1,000 in their graduating class, well, how many have they had over the last so many years? Or how many U of M, MDs, blah, 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 you know? And I really think if somebody did the the you know, took a look at that on a math basis over the course of time, you might be surprised at the yeah. answer you'd get. It might take you 50 years of history or 10 years or whatever the case is to say, well, there's been a 1,000 kids graduated from Climax in that period. One of them made it to Harvard. One of them became a doctor. One of them is an airline pilot. I don't know, you know, do whatever Secret you service agent want to do, <laughs> right? And then look at the other bigger school and see, is their percentage really going to be any different than that? Yeah. I don't think so, personally. Yeah, I, I feel like, the, honestly, it might even check out more in favor of Climax because those kids got more personalized education, yeah. more investment from the teachers. 
And I say it all the time on this podcast, the conundrum of the small town. The best part is everybody knows what's going on. The bad part sometimes when you're a kid is everybody Everybody knows knows what's what's going going on. on. You think you're in the clear, and then this person's cousin told this person's mom, and before you know it, you get home, and mom is madder than a hornet. (laughs) How did you know that? Yeah. Word travels fast on the roads of small towns. And I forget now... Uh, after graduating Climax, was it University of Michigan and then service, or was it service, then U of M? Oh, actually, it was um, Kellogg Community College. Okay. Two years, and then U of M, and then the Air Force. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, it's got to be a, a good thing for you with the national championship just happening last week. They had oh, to yeah. be kind of fun yeah. to watch. Well. <laughs> yep, Gil's adorned in a... A well-worn Michigan sweatshirt right now. It's aged, but it still works. That's that's the way I look at some of my wardrobe. Heck, that's the way I look in the mirror sometimes. Yeah, Yeah, great great things for Michigan. And then I don't know that I ever knew about your Air Force service until I was doing a little homework before we met up today. Um, Yeah, basically um, went in with hopes of being a pilot. And... um, um, got through, well, all the way to, you know, being sent to a, uh, under what you would consider like an undergraduate program where you started in the uh, uh, pilot training program and then they uh, did another physical you had to have. I'd already passed two of them. And the third one, I, I failed the hearing test. And, you know, they had all kinds of limitations as to who could and who couldn't, uh, you know, continue through that program. So I got washed out of that and went into, um, then it was more a matter of they actually gave you a few choices, you know, that um, you want to, we got openings here, 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 and here. And so I ended up being a communications officer because that was what I had the best background for a culver in communications i don't know if that would ever work out (laughs) that was a lot of history this week and you know what there's more where that came from next week when we get into part two thanks to gil culver for sitting down with me to give us two weeks of interviews for climax the podcast Thanks again to our sponsors and our partners, Kristen Wikoskiewicz State Farm, Eldred Homestead Bed and Breakfast, and Prairie Historical Society. And most of all, thank you, the listeners of Climax the Podcast. You're the reason we do this show, and you're the reason that it keeps going. Thank you for one year of Climax the Podcast. Love letter to a small town. I'll talk to you guys in about a week. <laughs>